Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And as always, we have a very interesting guest with me today is Curtis Fox. Curtis is uh, a former Green Beret and a graduate of Georgetown. Today, he works as a program manager and he wrote a very interesting book on hybrid warfare, which we will go into later on. Curtis, thank you for joining us. And thank you very much for being here. It's a real pleasure. I'm a frequent reader of Gray Dynamics and uh, I'm very excited to be able to participate. Yeah, uh, I need to front load and say that all opinions are my own and do not reflect the policy of you know, the Department of Defense or, or the United States government, but uh, I'm real glad I can be here. Perfect. As I said to you before, uh, we've had people on before that had to give a disclaimer, so that's no problem. Uh, we will also put it in the show notes. So, Curtis, how did your journey start in the U.S. military and what was that like? It started with the subprime mortgage crisis, if you can believe that. I was finishing up my bachelor's at uh, Virginia Tech uh, in mechanical engineering, and I started on a research assistantship to you know, pay for my graduate program. And right in the middle of, of my first summer in doing research, you know, the, the principals had to bring me in and they said, hey, look, uh, you know, all the funding and the outside support we had for the project had disappeared. The, there were a number of businesses that were supporting the research and they decided that they didn't want to release any more grant money because um, they had other things they needed to spend it on. And so I, I went from, you know, having my rent paid and my, my way through graduate school paid to starting to deliver pizzas. And I was trying to figure out what was going to come next. And, you know, I, I had the conversation with myself, you know, where I said, hey, look, when I'm, you know, 45 or 50 years old, I'm going to look back and wish I had done some time in service. And so I looked at the Army as a method of, uh, you know, paying for my, my master's degree. And uh, we had a friend of the family who had actually uh, gone into Special Forces. And he made a point to sit down with me and just tell me about his experience. And, and there was a little more nuance to to uh, being a Green Beret than just, uh, you know, the gunfighting aspect that soft units are so frequently associated with. There's a foreign language component and a need to, to uh, you know, work by, with, and through indigenous partners. And it's actually the, you know, the Special Forces ODAs are the only units in all of the United States military that actually run their own op cycle internally. They're the only units that are capable of gathering the information in their environment putting together their own mission package, actually conducting the mission, and then uh, being able to gather information in the aftermath. And that kind of independence and autonomy was really interesting to me and, and the need uh, to work in a unit that needs only individuals that can function in a disconnected environment was very appealing. And, uh, you know, the, the experience in, in the Army didn't disappoint. I enlisted, you go through basic training, uh, there's a preparatory course, and then if you're selected, you go through the Special Forces training pipeline. But if at any point you fail out in that cycle, you go to the needs of the Army. And, then, and that was a special program that was stood up for the war on terror. But it, it worked out very well for me. And what was that experience like when, when you passed selection? And you, did you know into what group you're going to go beforehand or no i didn't um they, they tell you your assignments at least at the time they told you your assignments once you finish the pipeline the language that you learn 
um, has a strong bearing on which group you're going to get associated with. Though, needless to say, uh, you know, they're, they're, every group needs somebody that probably speaks Arabic, you know, but uh, my assigned language was Russian, and that made 10 Special Forces Group my very likely likely assignment point. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a harrowing process, but, uh, you know, you learn a lot about yourself. I can imagine. And since the 10th is specialized in Europe, well, that's its area of, of operations, did you get any experience in the, the war on terror or was it purely focused on a European landscape? Uh, no, it was not actually the, the way the war on terror was working at the time was that almost every special forces group had shared responsibilities for Afghanistan. Although there was one primary group that was putting in personnel at any, you know, given time and that those focuses would be handed off as needed. 10th group was covering down on large portions of Africa at the time. And so actually, uh, you know, my, a few of my deployments were to Africa. Um, and that was the the war on terror missions we did. Can you go into a little bit of your experience and how it was working with host nation partners and as a young man? I, I can tell you it was it was you know eye opening to see how other people live. There's a lot of uh, Americans that have never spent a summer without air conditioning, and to be in parts of the world where there's extreme poverty and and still institutions like slavery. Um, was, uh, you know, it's very eye-opening. One of the things that really, that I, that stick out to me was, uh, the way in which the locals in Africa treat, uh, hospitality. It's almost their own sense of pride. And they, they have a, they have an extreme sense of, of the, the need to show you that they're good people and they're people worth knowing by being hospitable to you. And that applies to everybody from the, the local gas station clerk, uh, you know, and uh, to the cab driver all the way up to uh, the colonel in the Ministry of Defense that you're, inter- that you're interfacing with. And they, uh, yeah, that, that was a really interesting aspect. I mean, we talked a little bit about it uh, before, about being in Somalia and a, and a place that both of us worked. So can you, w- without going too much into detail, to how that experience was, I, th- I think one of the most interesting things about that experience, the so the, the if my I'm trying to remember if my timeline is correct here, the Somali national government in its in its current form was only reestablished in maybe 2012, and so it was only a few years old when I was in country, and they're still very much getting a sense of themselves. And it's a government that's funded largely by international partners. But nevertheless, there are people in, in Somalia that clearly see the need for this. Um, they, they understand, you know, the benefits of, let's say, nation statehood. They understand that the status quo in Somalia, particularly with al-Shabaab, is it's, it's not tenable and no one wants to live that way. And they are willing to fight for it and a lot of people are willing to die for it. The, the thing that governments like Somalia really have to push through and persevere through are let's say maybe the family-oriented and tribal-oriented nature of the peoples there. It's an aspect of the culture. They just they're always going to be you know let's say more committed to their family and their their immediate family, their extended family, and their tribe than they are to the national government. And that's going to be a long process of let's say untangling before they everyone is committed you know in the same level to to this nation state. 
and an enormous part of that process is the government, let's, let's say the Somali national government out of Mogadishu, demonstrating in clear and understandable terms that working with them is better, you know, and, and will be better for them and better for their tribe and better for their family in the long run uh, than potentially letting an insurgency like Al-Shabaab gain, let's say, real political authority. And th- that's a long teething process, and I got to see parts of it. And one of the things that really has stuck out to me, uh, not just while I was there, but uh, you know, in the years after and watching Somalia, was that Al-Shabaab has tried to make the move into a political movement at a number of levels, and they keep failing. And it, it seems clear to me that they don't. They're unable to really convey to the to the population as a whole of of what the benefits of their rule are. Certainly not, you know, and certainly not in a way that would be sustainable across the country. Maybe there's some sort of a caliphate they could eventually establish in southern Somalia if they eventually, you know, made enough military gains. But I, I don't see them ever being able to establish a stable rule. Um, the problem is how long is it going to take? Uh, the Somali national government to explain their counter, their counter thesis, let's say. Not not to go to, too deep into the weeds here, but there is one question or a comment that I hear often, which is what will happen if the African Union mission leaves and will Somalia go in the same way as Afghanistan? And I think it's a uh, apples and oranges the two countries are extremely different. In some ways, they are very similar when you look at like tribal makeup and, and these type of things. Can you give your opinion on that? Yeah, I guess the, the first piece to say is that I think the, the, the surrounding countries, you know, around uh, Somalia have a much more, they have a, they have a much greater understanding of what their stake is in the long-term outcome of Somalia than any of the regional partners did around Afghanistan. And I think that dictates the nature of the African Union participation in the conflict. Kenya, Ethiopia especially, are they're acutely aware of what the consequences for them would be if al-Shabaab were to gain a permanent political presence in Somalia. Um, and they, they don't want that in any sense. And so even if, even if they'll say the African Union as an institution were to remove itself, I, I, I'm, I'm quite certain that the, the Kenyans and, and the Ethiopians would be uh, motivated to intervene. And to, there will always be some sort of an external presence. And this is very different from, let's say, the Taliban in Afghanistan because most of the regional partners were... You know, they might not have wanted the Taliban to come back to power, but they weren't really willing to interfere to stop it from happening. And the Taliban had sanctuary in Pakistan and not just sanctuary, but the ISI, uh, you know, was willing the Pakistani and the intelligence service was supporting them, supplying them and providing their senior leaders with safe harbor. And that that's going to, you know, that's part of the Pakistani national defense strategy is to use insurgencies to to pursue foreign policy objectives there's no such uh there's no such occasion with al-shabaab they they do have support from you know let's international terrorist organizations in the form of al-qaeda let's say but that support where you know where the you know it's it's let's say it's financial in nature primarily and then they provide armament it has the paradox of being foreign fighters that are let's say of arab descent 
trying to come into a region that's not primarily ethnically Arab. And it creates a scene that, that's difficult for them because they stick out as outsiders. You know, that you know, under the let's let's to say the loosely the, the framework of Salafist Islam provides them a, a moral framework of cooperation and, and that's that's how Al Shabaab kind of moves forward as as an institution. But it makes it very difficult for them to uh, establish real rapport with the Republic. And that that's a paradox that Al Shabaab has not been able to fix in their, let's say, in their approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it made efforts to to focus on a Somali message and 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 focus on that. and and they have in the past also cleared or cleared out international uh, or Afghani or Arab fighters, which I don't think really exist anymore within Al-Shabaab. If we zoom out away from Somalia and we look at Africa, and it's, I think something you can talk about a little bit more is the shift, and particularly in the Sahel, away from France, not necessarily, I think, from the US, but and the adoption of Russian influence and 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 aid through through Wagner and uh, and and uh, Russia Africa Corps and, and these types of entities. Your book talks about hybrid warfare, and uh, I think that's a, a nice little segue there. Could you give your your opinion or your views on that shift and how does that fit into the larger methodology of of how Russia sees its foreign policy as well as its warfare? Yeah, uh, great question. And to fully answer it, I think I would have to start by critiquing French colonialism. And it's it's very different from, we tend to, in the West especially, uh, you know, we, we tend to think of all colonial empires being managed in the same way. And, and for the most part, that's not true. You know, the, the Turkish Empire was, you know, they were absolutely brutal occupiers. And, you know, the the crimes against humanity that, that they committed, they actually, you know, they kind of go overlooked by Western observers in a lot of senses. But even if you look at, like, the British and the French, there's enormous differences in governance. The Brits had a, a method of engaging with the world where they understood in the colonies that they invested that they had to actually serve some purpose for the rest of the British Empire. And so they looked at the geographies that have, you know, let's say clear, functional, safe harbors and ports where they could invest in infrastructure and it would really yield fruit. You know, in places they, they looked for populations that were very willing to work with them and integrate themselves into the larger ecosystem of the British Empire. And so, you know, it's it, British investments in that sense are almost driven almost exclusively by commerce. Alternatively, the French had a philosophy of make the world France, uh, where the British uh, the British colonial governors basically established English common law for the Anglos living in those countries, while they would let the local leadership, whether that's tribal or whether that was a whether they had actually established a degree of you know political governance that we could recognize under under some unified ruler and leadership, uh, you know, some monarchy. Uh, as long as they understood they were subject to the crown, they were basically able to govern themselves according to their own tradition. And that makes for a much quieter empire. It makes for better business. For the French, they adopted the attitude that you were going to be French, you were going to learn French, and you were going to act French, and you're going to understand that all roads lead to Paris. 
and they don't they don't invest you know in let's say places that are nearly as functional as the British do and that's one of the reasons all that you know all of these former French colonies in the Sahel you might you might wonder what it was that those countries were offering you know France as colonial possessions 200 years ago when they're you know located out in you know the the middle of the Sahel and the answer is not much but that wasn't the point the point was that France is great and they should be French well if you play that forward you know 200 years they have real resentments against Paris and it doesn't take much to really you know fan the flames of those resentments for them to really you know come up to the top and that's kind of what Wagner has done and they 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 don't really have to lie um, in order to in order to bring up <laughs> legitimate resentments but they have and certainly from World War II forward the, the French have they, their grip on these colonies has been let's say strained but it's very easy to find a local politician that needs a big bag of money it's very easy to find a local politician if he if he won't work with you if he's incorruptible you know he might accidentally get a toaster thrown into the bathtub with him when he's you know taking a bath and that uh you know those people tend to have accidents and the the french are they don't have the same scruples that that uh let's say an anglo that the anglosphere does and it becomes a little bit more pointed in the modern context especially in the post-soviet context because the french are realizing uh you know especially maybe from subprime mortgage crisis or maybe the Trump administration forward that they do have real economic interests in some of these former colonies there are there are natural resources there that they need to feed their their economy and so maintaining those political relationships are vital and they're looking to their old colonial trade network to feed themselves so the, these successes in Bog, done by Wagner I think they're the French will find a way to reestablish a foothold and part of the reason for that is that Long term, I don't think any sort of relationship with Wagner will deliver a better outcome for the, you know, for the people of, you know, Mali, for example. But in the near term, you know, Wagner operates under this Russian framework that, that Vladimir Putin has done a very good uh, job of articulating, which is that uh, Russia believes firmly that the internal issues of any, of any foreign country in any country in the world is strictly their business. Moscow wants to do business with you. They want to trade with you, but they are not, they don't exist to tell you what your internal politics should be. Um, and that's, that's a very potent lure to a despotic regime that sees reform as too politically costly. And if and alternatively, if you wanted to have a relationship with Europe or you wanted to have a relationship with the United States, they might go so far as to demand that you have elections and that you, uh, you know, establish something akin to rule of law and that you, you know, not, uh, you know, arrest uh, members of the political opposition. You know, that, that, you know, that is a, for a junta running, you know, running an African government, that can be a bridge too far. Um, and Wagner is a very appealing short-term solution. So the final piece I would add to that is that what Wagner is interested in is strictly profit in these countries. I don't, I, I don't think we should have any illusions that they're helping these juntas build, you know, let's say a stable series of institutions that function and in actually promoting that country's national interests. 
They're willing to provide security services for the government, let's say protection for officials so that they they know they're not going to be subject to a coup of some kind or an assassination of some kind. But their primary interest is in providing security services to diamond mines, oil, natural gas repositories, you know, uh, any commodity that can be extracted and then, you know, either sent to Russia to feed their to feed their system or maybe repackaged and re-exported. Oil arbitrage is a very popular strategy, but they also do uh, basic training services for the military. You know, they'll establish the country as a client state, issue them a series of loans, and then that country can use those loans to buy Russian military hardware, something they did with Venezuela. And so there's a lot of lucrative opportunities here. It's one of the reasons after the, uh, the Wagner insurrection, and, you know, that mad dash to Moscow. It's one of the reasons that Wagner didn't immediately disappear as a, as a private military company is because they're, they're useful. And, you know, how would Moscow be able to do these things without them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is of interest to say that after the death of Prigozhin, that Wagner in, in some places, not in all, but in, in some places have been pushed out by GRU or other like private entities and but the job itself remains the same obviously it's not uh, even though Wagner serves as uh, to get money in but it, it is a extension of the of the Russian state that's a very good way to conceptualize it so if we then look at Ukraine your your book mainly talks about I'll just quickly say the title hybrid warfare the Russian approach to strategic competition and com- and conventional military conflict. We look at Ukraine, where I think it's Georgia was the first time where they employed some of these hybrid tactics. Can you tell us, I think, in a, in a in an easy to understand way, what is hybrid warfare, and particularly what is hybrid warfare for Russians, and when did that strategy come to be? Let me well, let me start with the strategic picture because it answers your last question first, and I'll work down to the tactical. So when we when we think of hybrid warfare, we have to start with Russian grand strategy, and it's a grand strategy that has not evolved significantly since Peter the Great. I mean, this is I mean, this predates Vladimir Lenin by by many hundreds of years. You can even go back to you know, maybe the 8th century and the actual emergence of the Rus ethnicity itself and carry that forward. They're located on that vast uh, northern Eurasian steppe, and there are no geographic barriers. So, you know, as an ethnicity, uh, the only way to really achieve uh, a degree of security was simply to expand. And when you run into other ethnicities, the only strategy that you can really execute to deal with them is to either you know, conquer them and, and make them subordinate and ultimately subsume them into your ranks or to eradicate them or drive them out. Um, and that the, the Rus ethnicity has been expanding across that plane since their emergence. What Peter the Great really did, you know, he, he achieved a number of extraordinary things, including building, a, you know, the first real Russian Navy. But he, uh, what he was able to really articulate into, into their grand strategy was an expansion until Russia could anchor its political boundaries against hard geographic barriers. Um, that would be the Black Sea, the Carpathian Mountains, 
the Baltic Sea, the the Arctic Ocean, uh, you know, the Caucasus Mountains in the south, or the Gobi Desert, and that you know that is the reason Russia expanded to to you know be the world's largest country. So at the strategic level, that's the grand strategy they're pursuing, and their their hybrid warfare methodology is a means of achieving those objectives. One of the things the Russians have always known is that they exist on the periphery of Europe. They're they're not a part of European political progress or even technological development for the most part. And because of that, it's very difficult for them to compete directly with a country like Germany or France or, you know, what have you. And so their their approach to these to let's say political competition uh, has always been to kind of throw monkey wrenches in between the the, the machinations of, of the European great powers. They look for fissures and divides within the European political system where they can push in a pry bar and try to keep these grand coalitions from forming. You know, the kind of coalitions like under Napoleon or maybe Adolf Hitler that were capable of actually marching eastward and threatening Russia. And that's always been their strategy. As a component of that strategy, as far as they look for internal security, they've always relied on a potent, let's say, secret, secret service or secret police that can find political dissidents and arrest them because it's easier to eliminate agitators than it is to march an army from a place like St. Petersburg all the way out to Kamchatka to, uh, you know, to stop a local insurrection. Uh, That's how they hold the country together. And for the most part, that strategy has played out for them. Joseph Stalin really achieved the apogee of that strategy in the aftermath of World War II. He, He conquered most of Eastern Europe and installed authoritarian socialist regimes that were meant to be buffer states uh, between Russia and the West. And the real, the end state was to forward stage Russian heavy ground forces with tactical nuclear ordnance in East Germany on the other side of the, uh, the Fulda Gap. And that, that is what the Russians define as security. That's where they stop being nervous. So if we look at hybrid warfare from the operational level, you know, let's say the Russians have an emerging crisis in, let's say, a place like Ukraine or, you know, the Crimean Peninsula or maybe Georgia. What hybrid warfare is, is it, it it's a whole of government approach to try to resolve the crisis in, on terms that favor Moscow. So when we, when we talk about a whole government approach, that means first off, there's a military component and that kinetic military component needs to be, you know, needs to be potent. But first off, it's not the first. It's not the first preferred approach. We would prefer to use non-military and non-kinetic influences uh, in order to achieve our means before we resort to military force, or let's say before we escalate to military force. So those, uh, you know, that's that's targeted propaganda. That's uh, you know, economic coercion, diplomatic coercion, financial sanctions. You know that that comes in the form of, let's say, offering the Viktor Yanukovych regime, uh, you know, a fifteen billion dollar buyout of Ukrainian sovereign debt, and let's say uh, that that comes in the form of offering, uh, you know, preferred natural gas contracts, and all of those things are meant to slant the outcome. They are absolutely not above uh, bribing members of parliament. Uh, let's say, for, you know, let's say, like the Ukrainian parliament or you know whichever country you pick in order to try to destabilize the legislative process that, that sits beneath the prime minister of any of these countries or president of any of these countries. 
countries. And that's how they try to, you know, slant these things in their favor. You know, when those, when those mechanisms don't, don't achieve the desired political end state, the Russians move forward into, uh, you know, actual, uh, let's say tactical maneuver, you know, using their intelligence services and the elite units within the Russian ministry of defense. So the, the first thing to keep in mind is, is uh, the, this is the much vaunted Spetsnaz um, that you know we've been taught were the boogeyman during the Cold War, and the, the Spetsnaz brigades are actually strategic reconnaissance asset, uh, assets for each of the Russian military districts, and they, they so they look a little bit more like Marine Recon or Marine Force Recon in the grand scheme of things. Their their job is to actually first and foremost deliver information. But they are also regarded as, you know, uh, elite, elite trigger pullers in the Russian domain. But that's not their first job. That that would be the the VDV, the Russian Airborne uh, Airborne Infantry. They're actually regarded as like Russia's most elite warfighters, trigger pullers, and they actually have their own Spetsnaz Brigade. It's called the Forty Fifth SRB uh, Special Reconnaissance Brigade. But these are the kind of units that they surge in to uh, start laying the framework we the term we would use in the west is operational preparation of the environment and that's all the pre-day zero activities uh that would lay the framework for a successful military intervention and then post d-day or let's say uh you know day zero you know activities that would be advanced force operations those are all the activities that they rush in to conduct in order to lay the the foundation for the entry of heavy russian ground force so they operate under three principles. Maskarovka, which is simply Russian for camouflage. And what that means is they would prefer to operate through a hidden hand. This insulates them from international backlash. Um, you know, let's say the Germans for years have hold, held an enormous amount of leverage over Russia because they, they buy so much Russian oil and gas. And the only thing that would have made Moscow blink in any of these interventions for con- committing to them as if the Russians threatened to uh, renege on their oil and gas contracts. Now, that would create an economic crisis for Germany, but that uh, there's there's an enormous amount of money that Moscow would lose. They, that's about 40% of government revenues come from oil and gas itself. So that's not something that they can blink about. And so using the hidden hand approach gives them a plausible deniability and it allows countries like Germany, for example, to say, hey, look, like, you know, we don't like this. We don't like what's happening. But, you know, there's the smoking gun is not, it's not clear enough that, uh, you know, we can, you know, induce an economic crisis, uh, you know, in order to confront them about this behavior. Uh, the second term is uh, aktivnost, which is just Russian for activity. And those are all of the, the below boiling point activities that the Russians conduct in order to prevent the the target nations institutions from frustrating their military intervention that would be uh you know bribing or threatening politicians uh letting the local police chief know that you have photos of him in an affair that he's having that would be using let's say uh proxy forces like uh, the russian night wolves biker gang to go set up barricades uh, that would be uh, facilitating, uh, you know, protests outside the local city hall or, or the local police station, so that they they can't respond acutely to you know Russian kinetic activity. And then the last term is Vinyazovnost, uh, and Vinyazovnost literally just means surprise. And what surprise refers to is the speedy employment of Russia's 
uh, larger combat formations, particularly the VDV, but also, you know, the Spetsnaz brigades to the, to the extent that they can mobilize, you know, sufficient firepower. They, they enumerate a number of key objectives that they would need to seize. And then once they can use limited kinetic force to keep the host nation government from securing those objectives, they then themselves would, you know, surge, let's say the VDV in the country in order to seize those objectives themselves and entrench their gains. And once they're, once the, you know, large, once a, you know, a couple of battalions from the VDV are in place, uh, the only way to unseat them is with large scale artillery exchanges. And that's an escalation that, that in many cases, you know, a target nation might not be willing to cross, especially if they're in a state of political turmoil. So that in a nutshell is hybrid warfare. All right. So in, in the case of Ukraine, would you say, did it work? I mean, I think in Crimea, it can be considered a success and the Donbass, but the second invasion, or, or do we have to wait till a cease of hostilities to see if the hybrid warfare tactics have worked? Great question. Uh, the short answer is it did work in Ukraine for quite a number of years. From the moment Ukraine became independent, uh, you know, from the, you know, from the Soviet Socialist Republic as Ukraine and Ukraine, you know, reestablished its own constitutional governance in, I think we could say 1992, the Russians have been very careful to recognize Ukrainian autonomy while at the same time undermining it under the rug. Uh, or, you know, behind closed doors. And they've, they've done a very good job of making sure that there was always a kleptocratic regime that was pro-Moscow functioning in Kiev. And that, that really does follow the hybrid warfare framework, you know, pretty neatly. Viktor Yanukovych um, became extremely unpopular. Um, and when he, in his first campaign in 2004, uh, you know, when he failed, uh, they, they got very nervous. And they, they made sure that in uh, 2010, he would win. They really stacked the deck for his victory in 2010, and uh, you know, leading up to leading up to the Euromaidan crisis, Yanukovych became extremely unpopular, especially in his heavy-handed approach to cracking down on those protests. And he fled the country in February of, of 2014. He lost his nerve, and he he eventually wound up in Moscow. And the Russians eventually tried to get him to set up, you know, a government in exile. And that was when they, when he started, when he started losing his nerve, that's when they started formulating how they were going to conduct Crimean annexation. And the, if, if hybrid warfare had a Woodstock, it was the Crimean annexation. It was executed, uh, perfectly. The elite units that participated in it conducted themselves very professional, very professionally, and it was largely bloodless. So they, they, they did very well. The war in Donbass, um, you know, which I, I, uh, analyze my book is another hybrid war in Ukraine that's separate and distinctive from the Crimean annexation. Started out in spring of 2014 as a, as a uh, let's say, an uh, insurgency. Um, you could almost call it an unconventional war taken from the American lexicon. And the problem, they, 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 they didn't enumerate their objectives clearly enough. They, they, they failed in their Vignezipnost approach uh, in actually maneuvering credible conventional forces to seize those objectives. And part of that was because Moscow was so intent on maintaining a hidden hand. They wanted 
Donetsk, Luhansk, and the other some of the other city centers in Donbas to become a uh, similar autonomous republics to like South Ossetia or Abkhazia or maybe Trans- Transnistria, Moldova, and the Ukrainians were having none of it. the The propaganda narrative that the Russians were pushing after the Crimean annexation had become entirely implausible, and no one believed that uh, that this was uh, some sort of an indigenous grassroots movement to, to create political autonomy in Donbass. And so the, it took the summer of 2014 for the Ukrainian army to be reorganized and to, and to start moving against some of these insurgencies with credible kinetic force. But once they did, you know, the insurgents didn't really have a they the the Russians when they stand up proxy forces they almost always follow the structure of a Russian conventional infantry or artillery battalion, and unfortunately, you know Mao was the one that figured this out is that guerrillas won't stand and fight like like regular soldiers they don't have the the unit cohesion and the the, the culture of shared hardship that that uniformed soldiers do, and so you have to let them function as guerrillas you can't. You can't let them, uh, you, you can't organize them as you would a conventional unit. And so they, they, uh, they collapsed relatively quickly. And the Russians from August of 2014 forward had to surge their own conventional ground forces into Ukraine to shore up that collapsing insurgency. And what we saw that happen in Donbass when they did that is effectively they failed at executing a hybrid war in Donbass. And then they had to escalate into a full-scale conventional war that has a lot of the same hallmarks that the current war in Ukraine has at, at present. Um, you know, the entrenchments, the, uh, you know, the, the armored formations, the field of landmines. And they, they slowly pushed the Ukrainian forces out of Donetsk and Luhansk from the point where the insurgencies themselves were, were about to collapse. Uh, and uh, by uh, March of 2015, they had established a new status quo, and they they had achieved, I think, the battle line that would that would serve as the uh, the status quo until their their full scale invasion of Ukraine in twenty twenty two. And so, in in that regard, it yeah, that was that was a failed hybrid war. And what we're seeing in Ukraine at present is another. They attempted a, a hybrid war, but it suffered from a number of issues. Uh, and this is this is all actually in the epilogue of my book. They they tried the Maskarovka. They tried to create the, the propaganda narrative, but they they failed. No one in Ukraine is buying what they're selling anymore. They they've interfered in Ukrainian affairs too many times. They tried actually to even uh, build a, a propaganda narrative uh, for the world about their intervention. They they did this false flag operation where they tried to create a video. They actually took bodies from a morgue and they laid them out in a fashion that made it look like there had been some sort of ethnic cleansing of Russians in this area of Ukraine. And because of that, they, you know, they needed to Russian and, and defend ethnically Russian individuals that were being persecuted by this terrible government. Yeah. And that, uh, when that was pushed out on social media, it fell apart within, within minutes. Like no one believed that, that that was real in any sense. The they tried the economic coercion. They tried the the nuclear saber rattling with NATO. They, they started building up forces. They they do these annual exercises. They call uh, Zapad and Boslak, and they conducted one of them. 
and uh, from those exercises in September, they they basically use that as their as their surge point, or let's say their entry point to start pushing forces around the borders of, of Ukraine. Uh, following uh, the Lukashenko's sham re-elections in Belarus, he had to uh, he needed Moscow's support in order to stay in power, and the price of his of his continued reign in Belarus was the green light for Russia to stage, you know, ground forces in Belarus. And so they occupied the northern Ukrainian border from Belarus, as well as, uh, you know, the Donbass region and then uh, Crimea and, and the south. And that started out as something like 40,000 soldiers total, which surged up to 80,000, which surged up to 120,000. And by their full buildup, they had about 200,000 troops, which at the time was the full expeditionary potential of the Russian armed forces. And they, I think the world was trying to decide, you know, whether or not we should take this seriously. And I'm not sure that Vladimir Putin himself was, was convinced as to whether or not he should give the green light for this intervention. He was operating on some very bad information. We know now in the aftermath that the, the that GRU was removed from the planning cycle in this. This was given to the FSB. So the GRU is Russia's military intelligence service. They work directly for the general staff. The FSB is the inheritor of the KGB, and it, it's their it's it's Russia's largest intelligence service. It's also an institution that's kind of at war with itself, and it's very much at war with the other services, the Ministry of the Interior, the Ministry of Defense. It's always trying to push its people into other institutions and gain leverage over them. It's a very kleptocratic place. The GRU, on the other hand, is Russia's, let's say, its most capable intelligence service by a large margin. If you're if you're willing to, it'd be worth talking maybe a little bit about the mechanics of how the GRU actually works and why it wasn't in policymaking. The, the GRU is, uh, it's first off, it's the institution that actually has operational control of all of Russia's Spetsnaz brigades. So they 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 belong as assets to the military districts, uh, but the GRU um, actually has command and control functionality. So they they govern most of Russia's elite forces by volume. The other piece is that they, you know they they are a spy agency. And as far as, uh, let's say, intelligence operatives abroad, and then let's say the agents that they actually recruit and help collect information for them, they actually run about six times more agents abroad than the SVR, which is you know, Russia's foreign intelligence service. That would be you know, Russia's MI6, so to speak. But most of the GRU operatives were former Spetsnaz men. And because they they use the Spetsnaz as a breeding ground for those agents, and they, they learn a number of, uh, you know, good skills to have. Let's say they learn tactics, uh, you know, they learn field craft, they learn how to handle explosives and all sorts of things. But it creates a problem for the GRU as an institution because they do not have a an appreciation of the delicacy of international relationships or the, you know, the, the sensitivities of, of, you know, Moscow's position in global politics, and they can create incidents. And when they they're not allowed to bring information directly to the Kremlin. The FSB is, and the SVR are, but the GRU works for the general staff. And so to get noticed, very often they go fishing and they, they try to, knowing that, that military bureaucracy is a zero-sum game, they will try to do things to get noticed to just remind the Kremlin that they're doing good things for Russia. 
So the assassination of Sergei Skripal was one of those occasions. Uh, you are, you probably remember this. I believe it was you know early summer of 2018. Sergei Skripal was a he was a former Russian intelligence officer that had been flipped, and he was now living in uh, he was now living in the United Kingdom in Salisbury. These two GRU officers flew to the UK. They landed at London Heathrow drove out to or took a, a, a metro out to his out to Salisbury a cab out to his neighborhood reconned his front door then they went back to their to their hotel in London and then they came back the next day to Salisbury sprayed something on his door dropped it in a trash can and then they were back on a train at, and at London Heathrow and then on an airplane and out of London within you know six hours total it was so ham-fisted as to be laughable, but using Novichok nerve agent in a foreign country, you know, with, with your with Russia's fingerprints all over it, created a diplomatic crisis. They exposed maybe five or six people to nerve agent, and two of them died. Neither of the people that died were their actual targets. Sergei Skripal and his daughter both lived through the attack. Don Sturgis died. Uh, she, this poor woman. Her husband found the, or her boyfriend found the bottle that they had brought this nerve agent and he had brought it into the house because he was trying to figure out what this is. And when she came in and he wasn't home, she sprayed some of it on her wrist, thinking that it might be a perfume that he had bought for her. And I need to this poor woman just, you know, anyway. MI5 revealed that it, it, it demonstrated how ham-fisted the GRU was in this, and it demonstrated impressive capabilities of MI5. They had these guys from the start. They they knew they could actually trace these guys from their arrival at the FSB counterterrorism training center, where they apparently did like a week of, a week of briefings and training and planning sessions. Then tracking them from that training center to the airport in Russia, they have them getting off the plane at London Heathrow. They knew which flights they were on. They had them. You know, they had the whole thing, and they laid it out for British court. And like um, you know, the Russians. They, it was so obvious. They, these two guys flew on for, false passports. The Brits had their real identities. One of them actually was. Uh, he had been awarded the Hero of the Russian Federation Award, which is like their Congressional Medal of Honor. You know, the 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 GRU when they conduct when they plan missions. The only thing they think of is what is the end state that I'm trying to achieve? What's the tool I'm going to use? And how much leverage do I need in order to force that tool to get to that, you know, to pry that tool to get to that end state that I need to achieve? And that's it. It's a, that's the only, that's the only, you know, thinking that they go through. And that's a function of where they get their people from. After that incident, I think it was uh, in a solidarity with the, a show of solidarity with the UK. 150 career Russian diplomats were expelled from embassies persona non grata across Europe. I think another 50 from the United States followed. And those individuals, most of them, uh, you know, they were probably called diplomats, but they were, they were probably career Russian intelligence officers. The collective loss of intelligence for the Russians from that little incident was more than the, than the Kremlin could bear. And his name was Igor Korobov. I think it was Colonel General Igor Korobov was the head of the GRU at the time, and he was summoned to the Kremlin for an intense dressing down, and then he died of stress in his house maybe a month later, um, sometime around October or November that year. I've never known whether the stress was, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, you know, getting tied to a chair and pushed into a lake or what it was, um, but no one seems to lament him being gone. 
Anyway, after this incident, the GRU was removed. Uh, they, they No one cared what they thought. No one wanted them to participate in anything. And the FSB, when they claimed primacy over planning for Ukraine, I don't think the GRU was in a uh, position to resist. The GRU had planned the Russo-Georgian War, the Crimean annexation, uh, the war in Donbass. Like, that was their job, is to plan these things out for the Russian general staff and to bring them the information that they would need to to assist in military planning. Instead, it was handed off to FSB. The FSB Fifth Directorate is the directorate that is responsible for running foreign agents and then bringing that information back. They're supposed to run them in a counterintelligence capacity, but they, uh, I think it's more likely that they just run foreign agents and, and there's less focus on counterintelligence and more focus on just gathering information you know, as needed so to speak. There's not a whole lot of infrastructure there to police their behavior. And the that the fifth director is supposed to run those agents, bring that information back, analyze it and process it into real intelligence and then deliver that information to the Kremlin as part of the you know the presidential daily brief. That was most likely the directorate that was given the lion's share of the of the policy planning, let's say, for the, for the Ukrainian intervention, or the special military operation in February of 2022. The director, it took two weeks following the invasion in, in February, what is it, February 24th, for the President Putin to place the director of the fifth directorate under arrest, which means it took him about two weeks to realize he'd been lied to. We know now, based on the charges that were leveled against him, that he was probably enriching himself out of his own covert operations. He was telling the Kremlin that Ukraine is overwhelmingly pro-Russian, that the government in Kiev was weak, that uh, you know the government in Kiev is being run by Western powers primarily, and it's it's not making its own decisions in any way. And these are all things that that Moscow wanted to hear, and they were told that the the campaign to take Ukraine Ukraine is the size of Alaska, but the campaign to take Ukraine would only last maybe ten days. And after that, they expected all resistance to cease. And this is under nonsense. The, the campaign to cease Crimea didn't even take 10 days. So the, the, the next piece of this that absolutely caused the strain to come out of the rail, off the rails, was uh, um, Moscow's appalling information security. And first off, they're, they're, the leaks coming out of the Russian government, they have more, more leaks than the Iranian Navy. It, it's very bad. But there's more to it than that. They decided in order to make sure that no one knew what they were going to do, they weren't going to communicate with their soldiers or their officers and all the ground force commanders at all. So it's it's unclear when the general staff were told to start planning for this, but, it's, but what is clear is the general staff seemed to plan for a 10-day campaign and they were sent to theater in the first place and told that you need to plan for field exercises. We're going to demonstrate Russian military power. We're going to saber rattle for a while. And that's what they planned for. That's what they stockpiled ammunition for and fuel for. They didn't really stockpile even sufficient quantities of, of donated blood um, to deal with all the combat casualties they were going to receive. And that's most likely because the general staff was told to plan for you know exercises and then a 10-day campaign. We don't really know when the general staff was told that we are going to actually invade. But we do know that there are hundreds of Russian paratroopers who were captured by Ukrainian forces in the early days uh, that 
the VDV, a lot of their units were sent and the JRU Spetsnaz were sent to try to capture Kiev. And we know now, after a lot of them have been captured, that they didn't even know they were going to war until they were boarding aircraft with parachutes. And they were, they were told that, hey, you're not, this isn't a training drop. You're going to get dropped into war. And that, be- like, that beggars the imagination. How could you plan? How could you get all the soldiers to plan on how they're going to capture, you know, X, Y, and Z objectives? You know, like how could they credibly maneuver to capture those objectives if if they didn't know until they were getting on the aircraft that they were getting into a fight? You know, to give you just a point of comparison, um, in the early days of, of uh, you know, in the planning for D-Day leading in, even up to the massive June 6, 1944 invasion of Normandy in World War II, uh, all of the airborne infantry were given sand tables for months to memorize while the uh, while the uh, United States and the Brits built up forces in, in southern England for that invasion. And, uh, you know, they were, they were all told, this is, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be capturing cod or you're going to be capturing St. Merrick leaves. You know, these are where you're going to hit. If you miss your drop zone, I want you to memorize this region up here and sand tables for this region down here so that you know how to get to your objectives. And that's a, you know, that is, that's how you successfully plan for a military operation. The Russians didn't engage in any of that. And they just thought Ukraine would collapse. And the only reason, the only explanation as to why they thought they could get away with that is because the FSB didn't know what information the GRU needed in order to plan this thing, or the FSB didn't need, didn't know what information the general staff needed to plan this thing. The general staff was too weak and incompetent to tell the Kremlin it needed a decision, uh, and they didn't have the means to tell the FSB that you're not delivering us the information we need. And so everybody operated on partial information that was not willing to stand up to any other part of this ecosystem and say, hey, look, we don't have any of the pieces to do this. It's absolutely, it beggars the imagination. It also draws into contrast, you know, the the, the scope and scale of what it is that they're trying to do with the Crimean annexation or even the war in Syria. Uh, the Russians were strictly using elite forces and the best officers uh, that the ground forces have. These are only the top-notch commanders that are being put into combat situations, and they're maneuvering the Kremlin Kremlin troops. In order for Russia to muster 200,000 soldiers, they had to go to every backwater installation that they have and basically empty the garrison out and and say, hey, look, like all of you are going to war. And the... The added there's a there's some complexities in Russian law where only contract soldiers can be sent to war outside of Russia's borders unless there's a a larger declaration of war you know made as you know was the case let's say in World War II and so that's who these two hundred thousand soldiers that that got thrown into the meat grinder were they were Russia's contract soldiers the most motivated and well trained of their soldiery uh, and what they've had to do now is run a general conscription. And to, to try to refill the ranks of all those units that have been destroyed, and and it's not going well. They and they've they have three times the larger force now than they did then. I think they're they're running a little over six hundred thousand troops in theater now, but they're 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 not trying a war of maneuver. They're doing trench warfare. So they've that and that follows the model when hybrid warfare breaks down, it devolves into brutal conventional uh, a conventional slogging match effectively. Fascinating. I remember seeing a visual 
of I think a uh, I think it's the equivalent of Zilio, the, the the house selling website that you guys have in the US, where you can sell your house. Yeah, where yeah. They showed the Crimean Peninsula, and then they identified all the FSB officers' houses for, up for sale in uh, <laughs> <laughs> in Crimea, and that was fascinating to see because it was all beachfront. And so they knew, yeah. Which is they knew uh, it was going to happen, yeah. So that that was, um, yeah, it's uh, mind-boggling that that could happen at 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 that scale. The the number of yachts of Russian oligarchs that ended up in Turkey somehow, yeah, <laughs> yeah, another one. So what's next for Russian hybrid warfare? Do you think? I I think it will continue to be the governing modus operandi for for many years to come um the the, the approach is is born out of a russian grand strategy that's you know 400 years old the problem is that uh you know to let's say to to annex something as you know, to to conduct something as sophisticated as the Crimean annexation you actually do need elite forces and russia has thrown almost all of its elite units into the meat grinder the 45th srb you know which is the spetsnaz brigade for the vdv Took so many combat casualties that there there were updates uh, in open source media that indicated it might have one combat effective company out of the entire brigade, and those are not people that can be that can be easily replaced. That is years of development and training uh, in order to build an officer cadre around those individuals, and you can't just decide that you know those are you can't just you can't just decide that you're going to fill those ranks with conscripts and it's going to perform at the same level. And that goes with all of the other Spetsnaz brigades or the, the Russian naval infantry, um, which are considered you know, the Russian naval, and they don't call them Marines. They call them naval infantry. Morskoy Pajolta, or Morskaya Pajolta is, is their term, which literally means Navy infantry. And then they have uh, the VDV and, and the, the, the naval infantry and the VDV are, are they share officers. They they do a lot of common training. They don't conceptualize Marines in the same way we do. Uh, they, Marines mostly do airborne, let's say, airborne operations and air assault operations uh, in Russia. And uh, those units have been utterly hollowed out of their pre-war combat potential. Their Moscow is working hard to replace all their combat losses with conscripts, but that's you know it's a bandaid on a broken leg. The, the the reason if those units had any of their pre-war combat capability, they probably would be running, you know, slow moving artillery bombardments and, and slowly moving the ball forward in the trenches. They would they would be trying a war maneuver and they, they just don't have and they haven't shown an ability to conduct joint operations at all. The the air the aerospace forces, the VKS, they came a long way in Syria. That Syria was a constant process of honing their TTPs, training their officers, and refining the kind of ordnance that they were going to use to conduct strikes, and that was a good that was a good training ground for them. But they're they've revealed that they're nowhere near the capability of a of a Western or NATO air force, and they certainly can't coordinate on they can't coordinate with ground forces at scale. But it's worse than that. The the Russians have real have revealed that they can't actually even conduct combined arms maneuver. So this slow rolling steamroller approach from World War One is pretty much the only thing that they have available to them. 
And so to conduct this chic and sophisticated intervention like Crimea is no longer in their, in their capacity. That does not mean that all the tools will go away. The, the non-military influence activities, you know, whether that's financial or economic coercion or anything else, that will absolutely stay. They will still use organizations like Wagner, especially in the third world, to try to, to, try to uh, you know, let's say, send dividends back to Moscow and establish client states that will vote with Moscow at the UN. But hybrid warfare in the sense that we've known it, they, they just don't have the capacity to do. But they have all of the strategic incentives to, to try to execute it. And it will, it will remain at the strategic and operational levels, but not at the tactical level. Do you think that the Russian model can be replicated or especially on a tactical level or exported as it were? And the reason why I ask is I'm looking at Serbia, what the, the influence of Serbia is, is trying to affect on Bosnia and, and the Serbian enclave there, uh, Republika Srpska and Kosovo, where they have little green men, as it were, um, into North uh, Kosovo. Is that an extension of the Russian hybrid war, or is it Serbia recreating or copying these techniques? Ooh, man, that is a... Sorry, it's a bit that's of a... a that's question. an interesting <laughs> question. I don't think we can say that it is Serbia really trying to copy Russian hybrid war. The Russians themselves don't even have a word for what it is that they do. They when we say when they say hybrid war, what they what they're talking about is is Western influence operations. They don't they don't even call it hybrid war in their own terminology. So it's it's definitely not something they've taught to the Serbians. Um, my without getting too deep into the specifics, uh, I would say that. The, the what the Serbians are doing is, uh, let's say they're imitating some best practices that they've seen at the tactical level, um, but it doesn't have the let's say the same targeted, coordinated, targeted propaganda, and they don't have the means of financial coercion or diplomatic coercion. These non-military, non-kinetic influences that the Russians are so good at employing, and they're not uh, they're not they don't have near the economic heft. Let's say that Russia does. Russia is not a very big economy. It's actually this. It's a little bit smaller than the, than the economy of Texas, just for scale. But it is a massive exporter of oil and gas, and it's the world's largest wheat exporter, um, and it's also the world's largest fertilizer exporter, both in uh, potash and uh, uh, nitro- uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers. And because of that, it's very very difficult to carve them out of the world economy without creating an energy an energy crisis, and global famine. Serbia has none of those tools. And uh, it's, so I, I can I could definitely, especially with the cultural connections that they have to Russia, I could see them trying to implement some some of the practices of the Spetsnaz and maybe even you know, the secret police. But uh, the larger framework of hybrid warfare, I think, is outside their grasp. I could see the Iranians doing the IRGC and especially Quds Force or Al Quds, um, depending on you know what you're going to call it, they're they're a remarkably sophisticated institution that kind of straddles the the shed between intelligence as a uh, let's say an intelligence service and a special operations syndicate. 
And they absolutely have it within their ability to conduct hybrid warfare in a place like Iraq. They have an enormous amount of economic leverage over Iraq because Iraq imports much of their electricity from Iran. And then they have an enormous number of, uh, of uh, Shiite politicians uh, in, Iran, uh, in Iraq that rely on, on Iranian patronage. And Iran has a, has a vested interest in making sure that that remains a dominant coalition as opposed to you know, let's say this, the the Sunnis, especially the Sunnis in like a place like Myanmar, and they have, I, I would say that they have the they have the strategic impetus, they have the the means operationally for the non kinetic influences, and then at the tactical level, they have the very sophisticated institution in uh, Quds Force and the IRGC that would be capable of executing. Do you think in strategic or even tactical discourse? in the world that uh, we underestimate the Iranians? I think we underestimate them and I think we overestimate them. Let me explain the underestimation first. The 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 whole thesis of the Ayatollah, and we tend to, we kind of tend to forget that Iran is not, it's a theocratic oligarchy. And you know, let's say if we were, if somebody, if the Ayatollah were to die tomorrow from old age, there are another 50 senior clerics who can take his office and operate and occupy the office of the Supreme Leader. It's also absolutely the case that even if those individuals weren't there and they didn't have the cultural and, let's say, theological support to, to gain that level of political influence, that the IRGC as a separate institution would be capable of running Iran as a military dictatorship. The, the the elected government and I use that in a loose sense doesn't really have it, it has very it, it has the authority to do things within a very very limited bandwidth and that's it and for Iran to to join the world order as a as a you know a legitimate actor you know and let's say a legitimate actor as a as a trading country and a commerce partner you know, without their capacity and for them to forego this need to project influence in the world through insurgency, you know, in their sponsoring insurgencies and you know, the Houthis, Yemen, uh, Lebanon, uh, they're doing it in Iraq. They've done it in Syria. They, uh, they, the, uh, they're, they've, they're the principal supporters of Hamas, um, although they treat them, the Hamas for them are, they're Sunni and they're, so they're treated as apostates, but you know, if, if it achieves your goals, you know, why not use apostates as cannon fodder? And and for them to forego doing those things, by definition, means that the Iranian revolution failed. And so from a philosophical and a theological sense, it's not something that, that they will ever be able to to recognize as long as their governing institutions are clinging to the dogma of the Iranian revolution as sponsored by the Ayatollah. So... Uh, in keeping with that kind of grand strategy, if you look at, uh, let's say, what the IRGC has been able to set up with Hezbollah, Hezbollah is a, and it was an alarmingly sophisticated non-stateless, I guess you could call it an international terrorist organization, but the best, the better term might be regional militia, an alarmingly sophisticated regional militia. If you give them another 15 years, 20 years working with the Houthis, the Houthis will be at the same point. If you look at their operations in Latin America, they they discovered they, they work hand in hand with Hezbollah to do money laundering operations. 
they've realized that uh, you know Venezuela as a near failed state needs whatever help it can get, and they're willing to work with anybody to get that help. And so they're willing to help uh, you know the Venezuelan government move narcotics northward into the United States or Europe, and then they're they're willing to help Hezbollah set up those money laundering services from those narcotic revenues, and that helps fund some of their covert operations abroad. They, uh, there are an alarming number of, of uh, IRGC and Quds Force operatives in, in South America, um, and not just in Venezuela. They're active in Argentina, Chile, Brazil, and they they can do some real things, and they are not afraid to pull triggers when they think their national interests are at stake. On the inverse, whenever we get into a confrontation, when the Western when Western governments get into a confrontation with the Iranian, there are a number of media pundits that come forward and they 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 hand ring about you know the potential for a World War III from the confrontation, uh, and this is utter nonsense. The the Iranian armed forces are, let's say, they're much more competent than the Saudis, for sure. But they're they're underfunded. They're using antiquated, absolutely broken military hardware. They have no capacity to really project power outside of Persia because they're, they're, they're hemmed in by mountain ranges. And so supporting the logistics trains for anything that were, you know, for conventional military forces at a place like Iraq, you know, is near impossible for them. They have, uh, they have no Navy, um, beside a number of small fast boats that can do coastal patrols and their armed forces, uh, the, the, the term they use for it is the Artesh. They're, they're, you know, the, the idea that they can stand up to a single carrier battle group is is absurd in, in the extreme. That doesn't mean that we want to go to a war with Iran in any sense, um, and that does not mean that we ever want to get into a war of occupation and have to you know put soldiers into a place like Tehran and and try to build new Iranian institutions. But yeah, their their capacity to to really project conventional military power is is almost zero. Um, they're they're a they're an incompetent backwater, underfunded, extremely corrupt um, country. Um, and their capacity to invade their neighbors is very low. So let me we overestimate them and we underestimate them. Understood. Um, I mean, we can talk about this for uh, for a long time. I wanted to ask you because I know you you cannot really talk about what you do right today, but. If somebody's listening to the podcast and they they're either interested in joining uh, special forces or they want to write a book or they want to follow somewhat in your footsteps, as it were, um, what advice would you give them? Well, I guess the first thing to say, and I when I talk to you know young people, when I tell them, it, look, it's not a bad thing to play in your life. Figure out where you want to be when you're 40 years old or 50 years old, and then start plotting a pathway to get there. And and that that goes for men and women, you know. And I I I've always known that I wanted a family and I wanted a wife and kids. Um, and it, you have to make those things a priority in order to get to that end state. Um, and and the inverse is true for ladies too. The other piece I would say, if if you're interested in going to special forces or uh, you know, the Navy is going to have the SEALs, uh, or they, you know, there's, you know, the Marines have their own elite units or whatever it is. Maybe, maybe you want to join the French fourth Legion. I know, I know a few people that have, I know a few Americans that have actually, if you want to do those things, you can, uh, you have to, the first thing you have to do is tell yourself is that those things are within reach. 
and that you have the capacity to do. And then you have to start plotting how you're going to get there. You don't, when Navy SEALs aren't born, they're created, they're built. And you have to start the process of building that individual. Part of it means adopting a very long-term outlook. Um, you have to understand that the pain you're in in the moment or that, you know, being the call or being hungry or whatever it is, these things all pass and they're not as important as the objective you set for yourself. And it's easy to say that when you're warm in your living room and like, I'm going to adopt that mentality, but you have to maintain that mentality when you're actually cold and when you're actually wet and suffering. The, the second thing I would say is once you've made your plan and you know what you're going to do and where you're going to go, you need to get to the gym and you need to start running and you need to start, you need to start working out. You need to come up and you're not trying to build a beach body. You're trying to, you're trying to create functional fitness, the kind of functional fitness that will keep you in the game. And the more, the more physically fit you are, the better it is to keep your, your mind in the game of what it is that you're doing. I would say serving special forces really opened up some, some wonderful career doors for me. Um, and it's a great career for anybody that wants to go into it, but it's also a great door opener and it, and it, it's embraced the opportunities. I would tell you to, I would tell them to find some academic challenges and get away from the need to necessarily do a conventional degree. You know, people with bachelor's degrees, the one thing they all have in common is that we can't really tell that they have a bachelor's degree unless they tell you. They, uh, it's it's that's kind of what's happened is there's so many of them out there but you we, we can tell but employers can tell the difference between somebody who's served in you know the 82nd airborne or the marine corps uh and somebody off the street and they will choose that person over somebody that has a bachelor's degree any day of the week because they know that that person has discipline they know how to get on board with the mission and they know how to be part of a team and as far as uh you know, so that's what I would, that's what I would tell you is, is it, it's, it's an opportunity for you to have the adventure of your life. And if you will embrace it that way and understand that it gets you to where you want to be when you're 40 or 50, that then, then you, then you have an opportunity to do something really special. As far as writing a book goes, I can tell you that the, the core thing is for you to be very interested in the project for you to for you to love what it is that you're doing. I would take time to find the right, uh, you know, whether it's a fiction or a nonfiction thing for me. I almost don't exclusively read nonfiction. I, I don't know. You can probably tell I'm a little bit of a nerd. <laughs> well, very but, much alike, uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all right. I'll be guilty with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I would tell you that once you find something that you're passionate about, it doesn't need to be on a timeline. Start doing the research, start doing the reading, start building a pile of materials that you're going to need and take the time and slowly walk it forward and see what it turns into. Yeah, and the other thing I'll tell you is if, if you're going to publish, you need to make sure that you start finding a publisher before you've written the full manuscript. You need to find somebody once you've written like a couple of chapters or you have a good outline. Finding them after you've written the full manuscript is, is difficult um, because... Well, it may not fit into their business strategy. Learn a foreign language. It's a big one. I would tell, yeah, I would tell, I, this is a bigger problem in America than it is in, in uh, your part of the world. Um, but I would, I would tell Americans um, that you need to learn a foreign language. 
Um, and we, we have this kind of hubris that everybody should speak English. We're very lucky that English is kind of the global business language, but uh, it, it reduces your functionality. And and it, it's just learning the language itself helps you kind of understand the, you know how other parts of the world function and it gets you out of your, let's say, your own egocentric universe. Yeah, that's a great point. This is one actually that's probably something that comes out every episode. <laughs> Learn a foreign language. So um, it um, it says a lot. So do you have any questions for me, Curtis? My, I tell you what, my, I, I, I said at the beginning and I'll say it again, I, I read a lot of great, great dynamics. I, I love some of the, the content that you guys push out. Um, and I guess one of my, one of my questions would, would be, how do you guys, uh, you know, find, uh, you know, which topics you're going to be publishing on in the next week? It's like, I was reading one on this, uh, L3 vampire system, uh, yeah, last yeah. night. Yeah. And I was looking, I was like, man, my truck needs that surface air system. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was just like, how do you find these things? And like, what is it? Uh, like, how do you bring this stuff forward? So that's a great question. I think when we started out doing the the publication, it was more of, I think, the mission statement of how we pick uh, topics was what I find cool. That's how it started, basically. And to give to give analysts autonomy and, and showcase their own interest, we well, the way we work is we give them the topics pretty much in the beginning of joining us, and they build up an understanding of the culture and the focus of what great dynamics is and what we focus on. And I think if you had to put it into a an umbrella term as something you know really well is topics focused around irregular warfare, I would say. And that's also problems and topics that we cover with clients uh, offline. So that's one. And I think today we're a little bit more sophisticated and have a bit more gray hair. I think today we don't really follow news and trends. It happens so to be that if you do forecasts, your stuff will come into the news eventually. So it's a little bit being ahead of the curve, and but not for the sake of being ahead of the curve. Just understanding problems in the world and knowing that, yeah, maybe most people are not interested in what you're writing about, but they will come around. So today we published something on Myanmar and there's a whole insurgency going on there where the government is, I think only 50% of the of, of the land uh, they have in hand. But you're not hearing it in the news because you know the news is dominated by what's happening in Gaza and in the Red Sea. And then there's other places like Sudan and, and the Sahel. And so we, we look at where are the hotspots, you know, to for a lack of a better world in the world, and what are the topics or indicators that drive those hotspots? So it might be organized crime, it might be narcotics, it might be terrorism, it might be uh, foreign influence. So, and that's how the topics are born. So, and that's kind of in a convoluted way giving you an answer. I hope that gave an answer. Actually. Yeah. No, that, that's interesting. And I, I think one of the things I love most about 
great dynamics is I was telling you this uh, on Friday, but you guys draw my attention to, you know, little insurgencies that are happening in unlikely parts of the world that are just not on the, the, the radar within the general public discourse. And, uh, you know, there's this section of the spark that's, that's active and doing some things and we should be aware of them. And here's a forecast about what we think is going to happen in that region for the next six or 12 months. And, you know, here's a soft unit uh, that that most people weren't particularly aware of, and they're doing good work in this section of of the Philippines or you know whatever it is, right? And I, I think that that's a enormously valuable thing about Great Dynamics that I, I use to kind of inform myself about a lot of things that are off the radar of, of the mainstream media. Cheers. I think what you just said there is what I want to hear from somebody who reads or you know engages with our material so that's if we were able to do that then then uh, we did a great job and uh, it also helps young analysts find their way of how do I collect information how do I process that turn that into intelligence products and so that's the end state for our writers is that we want them to be able to write about something that they enjoy, but also create a product that that informs as well as you know supports decision making. If somebody wants to travel somewhere or want to do business in a country, so it's a bit of an extension of what we do offline, and now we we, we do it with uh, with great pride, and we're working on some some really cool projects in the in the next couple of months. I'm I'm really excited. To, for you to see that and for the rest of the people listening. My last question, Curtis, is outside of your book, which we will put in the in the description of everything on the website, what are you reading at the moment? Or listening to or watching? So in the moment, right now what's sitting on my on my nightstand is the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Wow. Um and that is That's a, a thick bill. that is a yeah, it's a thick book. Um, I, I'm not sure I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. The book I just finished that I would tell everybody in the U.S. military, especially to read, is called The Generals. Um, it was written by Tom Ricks, and it is a it's an outline in the first chapters about George C. Marshall and the the system of management that he set up in during World War II and how it is that he picked generals that were going to fight and win World War II. It talks about how he set grand strategy with cooperation from Henry Stenson, who was the Secretary of War, you know, for the Roosevelt administration. It talks about how he set up civil military discourse with the Roosevelt administration. And then it talks about how civil military discourse broke down the moment that he left his role as Army Chief of Staff and uh, the Roosevelt administration gave way to Truman uh, and the the problems that the Army Officer Corps faced in Korea, the general breakdown, the the inability to understand the battlefield uh, by General Westmoreland in Vietnam, and the reforms that the Army, that the Army made after Vietnam, both by Creighton Abrams and then by uh, William Dupuy to build the Army that we know in the United States day and he goes into the generals that actually started the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan Tommy Franks um, and then Ricardo Sanchez in Iraq 
And he goes back, he goes into how they repeated mistakes that were essentially made, you know, in Vietnam, you know, a failure to understand the conflict that they were in and an inability to pivot strategy based on the information they were receiving from subordinate officers. He points out some luminary, some luminary instances of leadership, like let's say Marine General O.P. Smith. Uh, in Korea, who I, I think has set the standard for what a division commander should be and, and the standard against which all division commanders should be evaluated against. He identifies uh, you know, the, the innovative nature of David Petraeus, and he highlights the differences between David Petraeus's management of the 101st Airborne and running the, the battlefield around Zul as opposed to other segments of Iraq that were under different kinds of management and how successful he was in comparison, even at division command. And he talks about General Mattis um, and, you know, General Mattis's leadership in Iraq. And it's not just critique, it's also examples to follow. And he does have some prognostications about how to make sure that we don't repeat history in the next conflict. And I coupled that, if, if there's one biography of George C. Marshall, I could recommend it would be Defender of the Republic. And that, that is a, a very good book for understanding what it is to be a statesman and the high-mindedness that comes with a lifetime of service. I've, uh, I've written them down, so I'm going to definitely check them out and, uh, and add them also to the, um, to the reading list. Curtis, this is Probably, no, this is not probably. This is the longest podcast I've ever done. I also think this is the podcast that I've said the least because it was really fascinating to hear you talk. I didn't want to interrupt. Um, there was really no reason for me to interrupt because your explanations were extremely detailed and complete. And I really want to, again, thank you for you come on and, and uh, share with us your story and and your research and, and your book. And I think for everybody listening, please, guys, get hybrid warfare, the Russian approach to strategic competition and conventional military conflict. It's available everywhere. And uh, I've ordered it. I haven't been able to read it all yet, but I got into it. And it's an incredibly important book if you want to understand Russian strategy operations as well as tactical level activities and please guys go get it thank you very much Ahmed for the opportunity it's been great and as I said I'm a big fan and I love the product you guys are putting out cheers thank you everybody listening guys if you made it this far as I say every week please uh, give us some feedback and uh, some critique so we can improve on what we're doing thank you and see you guys the next time